Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Gloria Purvis podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me. And I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Sister Josephine Garrett. She is a sister of the Holy Family of Nazareth and a licensed counselor specializing in trauma. I first reached out to Sister Josephine after the tragic shooting in Buffalo, New York on May 14th. I wanted to hear her wise words as a trauma specialist then and to talk about the racialized killing of people in Buffalo. And then only a week and a half later on May 24th, we witnessed another mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas, this time at an elementary school. 21 people were killed, 19 children and two adults. And this is so fresh. This is difficult. I mean, I'm reeling from the trauma of this. My child is the same age as those children who were murdered. My mom was a teacher. And they say those two adults that were killed were teachers in that school. So I can't even really process it. I'm still processing it. So I'll just be brief. We could not have expected another evil massacre just a week and a half later. So this interview with Sister Josephine, while it focuses on Buffalo, the importance of dealing with trauma still applies to Uvalde. So just to give you some context for this interview that I did with Sister Josephine, an 18-year-old white man drove four hours from his home in New York to a grocery store in Buffalo, New York, where he killed 10 people. And he drove four hours, not just to kill any people, but specifically Black people. He chose to hunt and murder Black people. And he chose that Topps grocery store because it fell in a neighborhood with the greatest concentration of African-Americans in Buffalo. And he also live-streamed his murderous rampage. And if you watched his live stream, you saw him killing elderly Black people, elderly Black women, Black men, really just anybody he could set his sights on as long as they were Black. And this is a problem. This is dangerous. And we have to process trauma of that event. In his manifesto, he quoted the Great Replacement Theory, which in essence was this idea that whites will be replaced by non-whites. And this idea, this great replacement idea and these other extreme things have become mainstream. In a previous episode of the podcast, we talked with Robert Pape about the mainstreaming of these extremist ideas. And guess what? We need to recognize that the church is not immune from these same extremist ideas. We need to know people within our church hold these ideas. Matter of fact, a Notre Dame faculty, Dr. Gasky, has written articles that feed that kind of white supremacy. Why do I name him in his articles? Because he was mentioned in the manifesto by the murderer in Buffalo. So these ideas are discussed casually among people in our church. 
And guess what, bishops? You have to care for all of us. And that's why you have to discuss it. It's important for our shepherds to name the sin of white supremacy. You must name the sin of racism in addressing this trauma, this event, these murders, this massacre. And it's important for the bishops to name it for the good of all of us. Name the evil, otherwise we behave as if that was not the problem. And also, how might we deal with or interact with people who are casually saying these extremist ideas that now have become normal, have become mainstream? So I wanted to talk with Sister Josephine about the trauma that these things cause. Even though you may see reporting or discussions that make it seem as if there isn't a trauma, so, you know, people don't even specifically name it. I mean, I saw one article where someone said, ah, you know, it's just like a few nut jobs. It's not, you know, it's like a hobby thing. As if this isn't some real true menace, a living malevolence in our society. So I have that discussion with Sister Josephine and hopefully we can deal with this. Although I don't want to deal with this again, but hopefully we can deal with this in a way that is healing for all of our communities. The Gloria Purvis Podcast is a production of America Media, where real, honest conversations are happening on the most important issues at the intersection of the church and the world. So if this podcast is meaningful to you, please support it by subscribing to it right now and also by getting a digital subscription to America. Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe and sign up today. The link is in the show notes. Stick around. My conversation with Sister Josephine is up next. Sister Josephine, welcome back to the Glory Purpose Podcast. Yay! Yay! <laughs> Thank you. I'm always so glad to talk to you. It's unfortunate that we are talking about basically a racist attack that ended in the deaths of 10 people. A racist attack, somebody specifically targeting the Black community, looking to kill Black people. I mean, it's it's hard for me to say it. It's not like... I don't know about this, but it's hard for me to say it. But I want to talk to you because of your background as a counselor. Could you help our listeners understand your training on how, why you can talk about this? Sure. So I'm a licensed professional counselor, also a nationally certified counselor. I specialize in trauma. So I love accompanying Jesus as he heals people from trauma. I work part-time in a private practice with teens and adults. And then I work part-time implementing a Catholic social-emotional curriculum in our cathedral grade school here in Tyler. So I'm just so grateful to God and to the sisters that I have these skills to be able to minister. And thank you for sharing those gifts with us on the podcast as we go through this national trauma. And I think as a trauma in, in a specific way also on the Black community. I mean, I know I felt a certain way when I heard about Buffalo. I mean, honestly, it took me right back to the murders of the Emanuel Nine in Charleston, South Carolina by another white supremacist. I'm wondering, what was your reaction when you heard the news about the Buffalo murders, the Buffalo massacre? I mean, my initial reaction was shock. And then my next reaction was, why again? And so I found myself resistant to facing the details of it. Like, I'm 
tired of having to enter into the discipline of facing the details, having difficult conversations, speaking up for myself and the Black community. And then as I realized, it was, here we go again, like in kind of a predictive pattern of what's in the days ahead. I think the thing that maybe is hard for people, some people, at least from what I'm saying, they don't understand how this violence, white supremacy, racist motivated violence can take a real toll on our mental health. So could you help people understand how that this does really have an effect? It does have an effect. And like, as a mental health counselor, I get frustrated when people minimize that. I mean, like people who have a discipline themselves to understand mental health will speak with authority <laughs> to try to undermine the impact of or the toll that it takes on mental health. It's like, you don't know, you haven't disciplined yourself in the field. And so the toll is very real. It's interesting that we're having this conversation now because the American Psychiatric Association just published a new DSM. So it's like the manual we use to diagnose and understand what's going on with someone when there's a mental health illness. And they switched up some of the trauma indicators a little bit. And so there's been an ongoing debate in the trauma community concerning, am I traumatized solely by being exposed to traumatic content via media? like seeing a video or reading stories like this about people being murdered, sought out to be murdered because they are Black. And so there's ongoing debate in the mental health community about does that cause trauma? In the last 10 years, there's been a lot of research. The research continues to show that there is an increase in prevalence of PTSD and traumatic stress connected to exposure to traumatic content on media. And in that newest release of the DSM, which was just like a text revision, they're already starting to go forward with saying media is enough to traumatize in the sense that they've said, okay, now if a child is six or under and has been exposed only through media content, that can be considered trauma. So they're already creeping, you know, in this sense. When we are repeatedly exposed to traumatic content, And then we are repeatedly told that our symptoms of that experience, like our symptoms of grief, our symptoms of sorrow, our experience of anger, that there's nothing wrong with us, it takes a toll on our mental health. So not only the exposure, but also this kind of the emperor has no clothes effect. You know, it's like, I'm looking around and I'm saying, there's a problem here. I'm speaking up and people are telling me, what are you talking about? There's no problem. So what do some of those symptoms look like? How can they manifest? You know, if somebody has been hearing so long that, you know, there's no trauma there, how can we tell if we are, in fact, experiencing symptoms of trauma? Oh, that's a great question. So like you said, my mind immediately went back. So like, I know that there may be some symptoms of like, let's say traumatic stress when I'm looking at this and starting to recall other events. Right. So in a sense, I'm flashing back. There's also signs of traumatic stress when it's we're connecting it to other experiences of grief. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with you if you're experiencing traumatic stress. Actually, it kind of probably means that you're operating on all cylinders because you're fully experiencing the breath and the seriousness of what's occurring. Another sign of traumatic stress is going to be anger that's difficult to control. 
So like these feelings that I am feeling enraged, right? Like I am wanting to, you'll hear people saying this, I'm wanting to go off. I think I said at one point, I'm, I feel like I want to kind of go Wanda from WandaVision, you know? And so that like uncontrolled rage is a symptom that I'm starting to deal with some traumatic stress. But again, like we have to be careful how we think of that. Like it's probably in a sense being enraged is an appropriate response when someone's trying to shut you down as you're trying to process a difficult experience. But also I think shame, like feeling afraid to speak is a sign that you're dealing with some of the shame that can be a sign of traumatic stress. Afraid to talk even in my closest relationships about this thing that's on my heart, on my mind. That construct of shame is a sign of traumatic stress. Why do you think maybe our society, and I'm going to say this, maybe especially white society, why do you think our society, especially white society, does not acknowledge this reality in the face of such brutal violence? Like, why can't they recognize that this is traumatizing to us? So I have, they're all the philosophers in the land are probably going to come for me, but I have a political philosophy degree from University of Dallas. And when I see this, like, you know, that's not real, I'm not going to acknowledge that, like, my mind automatically goes to Hobbes's state of nature and hear me out here. <laughs> and so if I'm operating from the gospel, according to the gospel, then I am safe and secure as a child of God. And so I would never need to deny another person's pain, right? And I would not need to run away from my participation in that pain because I'm a child of God, right? Jesus has the final say. But if I'm not sincerely like rooted in the kingdom, then yeah, my defenses absolutely have to be up. And so when Hobbes in political philosophy talks about the state of nature, he says it's a war between every man. And for me, I think that we have not been able to admit the depth and severity of white supremacy and racism in our country. And really, if we were to look, we got a lot of sins in America, right? And they're bearing all kinds of fruit. But if we were to try to see which sins run the deepest and are the oldest, they would be white supremacy and racism. And so, again, if I am not rooted in the kingdom, rooted in my identity as a son or daughter of God, but instead perhaps rooted in my belief in what America, I'll tell people sometimes, I'll tell that to some people sometimes, it's not your job to defend America. It's our job to save souls and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like, I, it's not my job to defend the principles of America. But if my religion is America, if my gospel is America, then it will be very difficult for me to admit something like that. And so we really returned ourselves to a state of nature, which is a state of war, according to Hobbes. And so I think for some people, for what you call white society, I think to admit the depth of this sin and the depth of this evil in our everyday life feels like a great threat to what perhaps may be their foundation. Yeah, no, I hear you. I imagine this would probably be yeah, quite a thing for people to have to deal with and process and share in that trauma with us, honestly. And who you know, that's a difficult thing for people to share and trauma with others. I mean, it's what compassion is to suffer with, but it's still something really hard for people to do. So much so that I see even when people do acknowledge the white supremacist 
motivations in the direct killing of Black people in Buffalo. It's a yes, but, and then a deflection off to something else. What What is that about? I think someone said to me the other day, and this is when it, this really set in on me, I don't think we realize that if the Black community can't be safe at a grocery store, none of us are safe at a grocery store. And so I think when we say that motivated by the evil of white supremacy and racism, this young white boy got in his car with three guns and drove 200 miles, essentially like he, like he was hunting Black people, like we're not human. And when we say that to somebody, we're telling them none of us are safe, none of us are okay. And so when I say yes, but back, right, if someone says yes, but back, they're saying, no, 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 I can't hold the space of that. And not only I can't hold the space for you, I can't hold the space for myself. So someone said that to me. They said, I'm so sorry, you're not safe at a grocery store. And I said to her, none of us are. Because if we're living in a country where we think, where people act like the appropriate response to white supremacy and racism that has borne the fruit of a child taking an automatic rifle to a grocery store and aiming at anyone whose skin was dark enough for him to see it as a problem, nobody's safe. And the thing to me also, sister, that I think people need to realize is this person was walking around with this kind of malevolence among his peers and pretty much was unrecognized. And I I kind of blame some of that on, because if he ever had a conversation about what he believed with anybody, they should have had red flags that this is some white supremacist, racist, you know, evil. But unfortunately, the way in which he talked and wrote to me, sounded more like something you could see on cable television. You know what I mean? Because people think if you don't use explicit racial slurs, somehow it's not racist. And I'm like, why is it that people can't recognize that malevolence, even when it's not using explicit racist language? Is there something about how we are processing this information? Is there something about how we're conditioned in our society? What is that? Why is that so hard for people to recognize when something is tinged, laden with, or full of white supremacist notions. And so I think, again, Gloria, I know it's probably not what people want to hear, but I think the primary construct is shame, because shame and silence go together, right? And so the people who shared life with this young man, I'm sure, like you're saying, have heard things, and we hear things, right? I can't, there are some channels I can't turn on anymore, because they have become so offensive to me, and the language indicates to me that I'm not safe. And there's some Catholic media that I can no longer entertain because the language indicates that I am not safe. And so I try to, you know, to protect my own mental health. I don't entertain that media anymore. I think we're afraid to take on challenges like that because we're quickly, and I hate how overused this term is, but it's accurate to use here. We're quickly gaslighted. So when we try to point out to people, no, actually, that language that you're using is quite aggressive. That language is quite evil. You know, I have my godfather as an English professor, and he's always on me about the importance of my language and to be mindful of what what is coming out of my mouth really means. And so I think that we struggle to challenge that language, like you said, when it's not explicitly explicitly evil. Because again, when we face it, 
we would have to face how much this root in our society is bearing fruit around us. And I think it's incredibly overwhelming. You know, as a trauma counselor, the construct of the experience makes sense to me. You know, I do gradual exposure therapy with some of my clients. And when they come in the office for the first time, they won't even speak of the trauma. They won't, if they will at all, they'll say the thing that happened. And as a trauma counselor, it's my objective to when they leave out of here, not only can they speak of it, but they can speak of it in a way that is no longer governing their lives in the shadows. And so I think we're silent and allowing this fruit around us of white supremacy and racism to govern in the shadows. And then when it peaks up on the surface and in this overt way, some people need to push it down. And some of us are, again, are placed back in the cycle where we're kind of like, well, we've been seeing this around us in all these different ways. I drive down five times a week. I pass Chilton Avenue. I know who Chilton is. I know Chilton was a renowned white supremacist. And four to five times a week, I have to look at his name on a street sign. And so it's like that street sign is connected to what happened in Buffalo. And I think that's a lot for people to hold. When you mentioned driving down that street and seeing the name of the white supremacist and, you know, what that does in light of also the trauma of Buffalo, I'm hoping people can also apply that to the discussion about Confederate monuments and understand why people are like, we don't want this in our public memory. This is not something we want to value in our public memory. And the trauma that it does bring to the community by honoring these types of people and what they stood for. So one of the things also you mentioned is in your trauma counseling is getting people to name the trauma. And you shared a tweet very gently, lovingly asking the Bishop in Buffalo to, in his press statement, to actually name that it was seeking to kill Black people motivated by racism and white supremacy. And how do we get our bishops to, I, some did in their statements that were released, actually did name it. But how do we get our bishops to see that as a part of their pastoral care, that naming racism and naming white supremacy is a part of caring for the communities that they shepherd? I think just that, what you're saying, like connecting their language to the hearts of people. And so we know, like, and again, this is how I teach my trauma clients. When we experience traumas, when we have overwhelming experiences, our nervous systems and our brain automatically try to move away from the content to protect ourselves. But that's maladaptive. We need to move towards it and name it so that it doesn't create maladaptive symptoms. And I think if our bishops can understand, like, you heal your community, you heal your flock when you name this for what it is. And you actually harm your flock when you are silent. And you harm your flock when you do speak up and you don't name what it is. And so there's a thing called protective factors in trauma counseling and all counseling. We'll ask ourselves, what are the protective factors? When we can say out loud what has happened, when we can name the names of the people who were murdered. And so that I discern that to ask Bishop, no, no, you protect and help to heal your flock if you will name what this is. And if you avoid saying what it is, then you actually reinforce shame in your community and you embolden, you could perhaps embolden people in your community who also hold racist and white supremacist beliefs. 
And so it is so important as a shepherd that they be connecting the words coming out of their mouths with the hearts that have been entrusted to them. Because at each shepherd's particular judgment, at each bishop's particular judgment, he will have to give an account of the people that he was entrusted to pastor. Gosh, that's a lot to process and I'm, I'm thankful for it. But I think some people maybe miss because, you know, we've talked about like the trauma effect in the Black community here. But how does this also affect the white community when you don't name it versus when you do name it? It's enabling. And again, I think this mindset, and I may be stuck on this because I was so alarmed with the comments that I received saying, you must not feel safe. And I'm all, honey child, you're not safe either. <laughs> None of us are safe. Because this thing we've set up for ourselves, it is every man against every man, and it obstructs the coming of the kingdom. And when the kingdom can't come, nobody is safe. We'll be back in a minute. So one of the things that I've said before when I ever go and talk about racism is that the doors of the church have not been a shield against this sin finding its way inside the pews of the church. And when we talk about this racist language, while not being as overt as using racial slurs, it's still very much present that this type of white supremacy can find fertile ground in some Catholic circle, you know. We have to be realistic about this. But I think the trouble is, again, people not knowing how to react to it. What advice would you give to our white listeners who may be encountering that kind of, or having that kind of experience? What advice would you give to them on how to respond, maybe not respond? What should they do? I think that they, again, I think that's what's going to help. Like, if all of us can get together and start to respond to this little by little especially in our local churches, like where we find ourselves. I'm a big proponent of face-to-face conversations because, and I, I think it's important to bring this up here too, that when we're on the internet having these incredibly vulnerable conversations, we're quite literally not firing on all cylinders. When you think about the, like the, the brain and the human person. And so there's so much that is perceived from a person when I'm face to face with them in the flesh. And it actually, the parts of our brain that handle empathy and perspective taking are best served when I'm face to face. And so I know like, and I was just in this situation recently where I had to speak up, like something happened and it was related to racism. And I felt like it was all taken too lightly. And I had to speak up and it was, and it was in a close relationship, a loving relationship. Like I knew that these people loved me and I also knew that they maybe didn't understand. And the vulnerability that came with that, the fear of losing these relationships that were important to me and valuable to me was real. And so I think when we're telling people you need to speak up, we need to hold, like hold that space that we're asking you to speak up in the context of relationships that are valuable and important to you, we know. And it is a vulnerable experience and it can come with a great deal of fear. And you could probably feel like you're going to stumble and not even say things right. But even just that raised flag to say, I'm not comfortable with what you said, or I'm not comfortable with what you just did. And then you can say, when you say or do those things, it calls to mind this for me. And I see it connected to racism and I see it as connected to white supremacy. 
I think it's so important for all of us to know that like, this is some of that like 12 step spirituality that Mm -hmm. we're responsible for our side of the street. So once I've said that, I feel uncomfortable when you say that or do that, that what you just said or did, I see is connected to racism or white supremacy in this way. Once you've done that, surrender the outcome. I think we want to convert people in one hot minute. And I try to remind people, Jesus has given me decades. He has given me decades. And I have acted a pure fool for decades. And there are some areas where I'm still acting a pure fool. And so I think sometimes when we're going into these conversations, guns blazing, like, you know, you did it. You know, you did it. (laughs) Just like (laughs) wanting to convert people instantaneously to realize that that might be kind of a setup for a really awful experience and for additional trauma and shame. So I sometimes think when people are having these trauma responses, whether it's a response of anger or whatever it is, sometimes we're not in the place (laughs) to have those conversations. I think we need to recognize that. But I also want to talk about, well, what can we do when we're realizing we're having a trauma response? How can we have what they call self-care? Like, what can we do to, like, just protect ourselves? Yeah, so that last response was to your question of, like, when white people are sitting with other white people or when, say, highly, like, people who are non-white but are highly integrated into white communities and seeing these things. I think that last response is for those folks. Like, how do you bring that up? But it is important when I am experiencing a trauma response and the way we recognize our trauma response best first is in our bodies. So my heart is starting to race and my skin is getting clammy and my palms are sweaty and my legs feel weak and my stomach feels nauseous. I can assure you that you are having what we people more typically call a fight or flight or flee experience. And so when that is happening, it is best to use no words because quite literally like the part of your brain where you reason and logic and make sense of things is not most available to you. And so I'm not saying that so you can make it convenient to somebody who needs to be corrected. I'm not saying that so you can make it easier for them or ensure their comfort. I'm saying that so that you can assure your own well-being. And so if I'm having those initial signs of feeling triggered, experiencing traumatic stress that first show up in the body, for my own well-being, it's important to step back. It's important to find somebody I can talk to that it's safe to talk to, you know, that will listen to me, that will hear me, that loves me, you know, a relationship that doesn't feel like a battleground. So those were the first things I would say. And I think it's so important when we're having that experience of traumatic stress or that kind of fight or flight response to get off the internet. And I know sometimes this is how we work it out. I know sometimes going off on the internet is part of the process, but I don't know if it's ultimately for our own good mental health and well-being. One of the things that I have found perplexing, but in this day and age on the internet, you never know who anybody really is. When you have these people identifying so-called, claim they're Black on the internet, but espouse some of the same sort of, there's nothing really wrong, or yeah, that was bad, but so you see the, yes, but what about Waukesha, you know, Christmas parade where this Black man mowed down people with his car and killed people or, you know, things like that. And they're like, why don't you talk about that? And I guess for me, it's very exhausting 
to have to explain why they're not the same. Like there was no manifesto in Waukesha. This guy in Waukesha was not in any way similarly situated as the man who went and murdered the people in Buffalo. And also the history of the Black community in this country, the long history of white supremacist violence against our community it has an impact. And I don't know if they call it epigenetics or what, but there's all of that comes into play for me in Buffalo or in the Charleston massacre. Can you talk about that, the context there? Just help some. I'll be really frank. Like as a counselor of children, that struggle to say, oh yeah, but or to not be able to hold those types of experiences in the tension and in their differences is developmentally about a fourth grader. And so I just need to say that, like that tendency to do that is something developmentally I would see in a child. And you're seeing that stuff on the internet. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, as a mental health counselor, I, I mean, it overwhelms me to think about the lack of empathy required to say something like that in the face of that much violence, death, racism, and white supremacy. And so when I say that, like, we're literally not firing on all cylinders when we're on the internet having these really vulnerable conversations, like, we really are not functioning with our capacities for empathy and perspective taking, especially if the majority of the way we have these vulnerable conversations is on the internet, we're doing ourselves a great disservice. And so the yeah, buts, I would just encourage you to have, I would say, please have more face-to-face relationships and fewer online relationships because you are struggling. You are struggling. And a note on epigenetics, I don't know if people don't believe that, but that's just solid science, that genes are genes, and they go on the way they go on. But the way they relate to one another is dependent on uh, relationships, like the patterns of relationships, the experiences in an environment. And so we know that ongoing traumatic stress affects epigenetics. And so it affects how these genes relate. And that coding of how the genes relate is passed on. But you and I have talked about that before. Yeah, there's traumatic stress that is experienced deeply in the Black community. And there's also just a great experience of resilience among us. I do want us to recognize, though, that we have also running through our veins just a great faith and a great ability, a great resilience but these things are real. And when someone's saying, yeah, but they've entered into a sincere struggle to be a follower of Jesus Christ. They've entered into a struggle with empathy and they've probably are experiencing some loneliness in their life. I would wonder like if they really have meaningful face-to-face relationships um, because something's missing. And if it's a black person, if it's a black person saying, yeah, but I cannot imagine the level of shame that person is feeling in their own skin. Hmm. That's Those are some powerful words for us to end with. Sister, you know, thank you so much. And I know one of the things that you wanted to do is end with us remembering the people whose lives were lost. And so I'm going to let you close out with that. On Saturday, May 14th, 2022, 
Motivated by the evils of racism and white supremacy, an 18-year-old man drove 200 miles with an AR-15 rifle with the intention to seek out and murder Black people. Their names were, of the 10 whose lives were lost, Aaron Salter, Ruth Whitfield, Roberta Drury, Deacon Hayward Patterson, Pearl Young, Marcus Morrison, Andre McNeil, Geraldine Talley, Celestine Cheney, and Catherine Massey. Eternal rest granted them, O Lord, and let perpetual light shine upon them. May they rest in peace. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Sister Josephine, for joining me on the podcast. And hopefully we'll be talking soon. Thank you, Gloria. I'm so glad you're tuning into the Gloria Purvis podcast and journeying with me through these important and sometimes challenging conversations. Please share this episode with a friend or family member and be sure to subscribe to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app. Oh, and leave us a review if you can. I would love to hear from you. And by the way, you can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. This episode was produced by Maggie Van Dorn and Sebastian Gomes, and it's engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time.